hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. So imagine being on a cruise that seemingly never comes to an end and the place you thought you could disembark won't let you. That's the story of one couple, Ron and Deb Taylor, who were passengers on board the Azamara Pursuit cruise ship. It was quite an ordeal as they weren't allowed to disembark in South America like they were supposed to. And they eventually ended up in Miami, where they finally were allowed to get off the ship and head home. It's quite a story, so we'll hear more about it a bit later on. We're also going to chat about the future of travel in general and just how long it'll take the travel industry to recover from this COVID pandemic. According to the author of one article called Looking Past This Crisis, the future state of travel, it might be a lot quicker than you think. So we'll chat about that. But first, to start things off, we've invited the folks from Samaritan's Purse to join us to learn about some of the work they're doing to help during this COVID pandemic, especially in Italy, a place that has been one of the hardest hit by the virus. So to tell us more about their work is Ian Stokes. He's the International Disaster Response Director for Samaritan's Purse. The website is samaritanspurse.ca. Hi, Ian. Hi, Randy. Let's start. uh, Just give me some background on what Samaritan's Purse is all about and the work you do. Yeah, so Samaritan's Purse, um, uh, we are uh, an international relief and development organization. Um, We are a Christian uh, organization that does um, work around the world. Uh, We have offices in the United States, here in Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, Germany, Australia. Uh, We have field offices in about 20 uh, countries around the world uh, where we have staff and we implement programming on an ongoing basis. And we do a lot of disaster response work. Uh, usually we're responding to um, natural disasters, oftentimes man-made uh, conflict and so on. And um, also in the last several years uh, with Ebola and now with COVID-19, we find ourselves responding to infectious disease outbreaks as well. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you, like you say, you help out uh, all over the world. But one of your main focuses right now is in Italy. Tell me about that. Yeah, so earlier in March, um, the Italian government uh, requested assistance and reached out to Samaritan's Purse uh, to deploy our emergency field hospital. Uh, So this is a modular field hospital uh, made up of about uh, 14 to 15 inflatable tents. It has a capacity for uh, 68 patients, so a 60-bed inpatient ward and eight ICU beds. Um, All of those ICU beds as well come equipped with ventilators. So that was deployed um, to Cremona in northern Italy, which, as your listeners will know, very much one of the ground zeroes, really, of the outbreak in northern Italy. And our hospital uh, is on the site of the Cremona Hospital, um, which was a hospital just overwhelmed uh, with COVID-19 cases, um, with their staff. And so our hospital is literally um, set up and built in the parking lot of the Cremona Hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, and so is that how it works? Governments contact you and you sort of get the, the wheel going? Yeah, generally, um, we work off of an invitation. We need to be invited um, by the government, by the local Ministry of Health. And so that is a part of the process. 
Um, in many cases, of, of course, governments are not aware of that side of the work that we do. And so oftentimes we do reach out to let them know uh, what our capacity is. And then from there, that invitation is extended. You can imagine there's a lot involved in making that happen. Um, and so uh, we will certainly let the governments know what our capacity is, and then they will invite us to come and, um, and to do our work. And obviously you get volunteers to do this. How, do, how does that process work? If I'm a healthcare worker and I'd like to yeah. maybe volunteer for this, how, do, how did they, you get people involved with that? Yeah, so we our mechanism for sending people uh, internationally to respond to disasters is something that we call our DART team, which is simply an acronym for Disaster Assistance Response Teams. Uh, we have a global roster of about a thousand people, uh, three hundred of which are Canadian. Uh, of that three hundred, probably um, about fifty percent are medical care or um, are, are medical professionals, uh, surgeons, doctors, lots of nurses, all the various specialties. Uh, so all of those people, they, they apply uh, to be a part of the DART team. Uh, we go through an interview process with them. It's just like we essentially employ someone. And when they serve with us, we do pay them. Um, we cover their costs. So we pay them a daily stipend. Uh, if people are interested in finding more information, as you already mentioned, our website up the top of the mm-hmm. piece here, samaritanspurse.ca soon as you hit that homepage, um, you're going to see some banners talking about our work with COVID-19, inviting people to participate either by giving or considering uh, going and that application process. Uh, so all of that uh, information can be found on our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and we, when you do go on there, there's a, there's a few images as well, so you can get a good uh, visual of how uh, the uh, people are working in Italy, and they look pretty well protected. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, Randy, Samaritan's Purse gained a lot of experience fighting infectious disease during the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa. There was a consequent one in DRC in the last couple of years. Um, initially, we worked very closely with um, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, um, uh, in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So when it comes to protocols and PPE protocols, um, Samaritan's Purse uh, exercises incredible diligence mm-hmm. um, in in those things. I was talking to one of our doctors yesterday, um, an Alberta-based doc. She's on her way over uh, to Cremona, and she was saying, based on what she was seeing, uh, the protocols that were in place were were probably a little bit more superior to what she's seeing here domestically as well. So it's certainly something we take very, very seriously. So um, our teams on the ground there are incredibly diligent uh, about those protocols. Well, you do tremendous work. Uh, If people want to help, I guess one way is to volunteer. If you can't do that, the other way is to donate, right? And you can do it right on the uh, Samaritan's Purse website. Yeah, that is correct. Again, samaritanspurse.ca, there's lots of links to where you can do that directly. Click on those links. And, of course, as a Canadian charitable organization, all of those donations are eligible for uh, tax receipts. Ian Stokes is the International Disaster Response Director with Samaritan's Purse Canada. Again, that website, samaritanspurse.ca. Thanks for your input, Ian. Uh, You guys do great work. Appreciate it. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for your interest in our work there. So just how long will it take the travel industry to recover from this COVID pandemic? 
Well, according to the author of one article called Looking Past This Crisis, The Future State of Travel, it might be a lot quicker than you think. That author is Clayton Reed. He's the CEO of MMGY Global. And Clayton joins us now to explain further. Hi, Clayton. Well, hello. So uh, tell me a little bit about MMGY Global and uh, what you do. Well, thanks for having us on. You know, we uh, work exclusively in the travel industry, so we look after clients around the world who are travel suppliers, uh, airlines, lodging companies, tourism bureaus, uh, transportation. We also do a great deal of research around consumer behavior in travel, so we try to get a feel for how travelers make decisions, the kinds of places they want to go, what some of their uh, priorities are for them when they do travel, both in terms of business travel and leisure travel. So today, particularly we're trying to understand the mindset in the middle of this crisis and how people are putting travel in their pri- how pri- travel is a priority for them today. Mm-hmm. Well, I think everything is up in the air right now, but you make some interesting points in your uh, article looking past this crisis, the future state of travel. Uh, I found it on hospitalitynet.org. Uh, there's a number of places you can find it, but you make some interesting points. Uh, let's start about the uh, the four societal mindset phases that you talk about. Yeah, that's what we're really trying to, to – we've seen this in past crises as well. So, for example, we, we would – during the Zika virus, um, which took a hold in the Caribbean and in the cruise line industry and really had people pause for a moment around how they wanted to travel in those parts of the world or in that type of process. And we found that people go through these four phases you alluded to. First is fear, and sometimes that's irrational fear because today in our social media and 24-7 news cycles, we – there tends to be fear-mongering, and I think people, their first reaction to a lot of these things is absolute fear that can be uh, gripping mm-hmm. and it can be paralyzing. And then we find they move into a second phase, which is understanding. So people start to rationalize the fear. They start to understand what the real issues are. Mm-hmm. Then we see they move to action, and then they finally, what we would call return to rational behavior. And that, that progression can take shape in a, a few days, a few weeks, or a few months, depending on the scale of the issue. We've looked at this around ter- terrorism. We've looked at this around Ebola, Zika, SARS, swine mm-hmm. flu, and really tried to understand that mindset. Well, and I always so, think, too, uh, that the travel industry has been very resilient, right? Uh, you mentioned, you know, you know 9-11, uh, SARS, all those things, and it, it seems to bounce back no matter what. Well, I think that's right. We, Randy, we, every time we see something like this happen, we see the travel industry lead out a recovery, whether it be economic or it be, or be a more fear-based um, disease, etc. People just see travel as a right, and it's on the leisure side for people who are looking for vacations and to take their family somewhere, they consider it a right. And for business uh, and meetings, people know they have to get out and have interpersonal relationships and travels at the centerpiece of that. So we know that when things get past fear and into understanding and action, travel will bounce back quickly. That's happened every time we've, we've seen something gone through something like this as a society. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that now, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, you're saying in this article, too, that travel activity spending will return more quickly than predicted. Uh, just walk us through some of the, the points that you make uh, about that premise. Sure. When, we, when we've looked at past recessions or, or crises, we've found a couple things that are true. First, when people are in the midst of fear, they, they say they're going to cancel their travel altogether. We've actually seen that with COVID-19. Um, we've set 41% of people have told us they will absolutely cancel their trip um, this year. But what happens over time as they get 
further away from the crisis as they begin to rebook. So the first point is, yes, people initially paralyzed by fear say, I cannot travel, I will not travel. But then as they emerge from the crisis, they say, gosh, I really want to travel, and they rebook. And so what happens in travel is the booking links tend to get shorter. People book with less notice. They take advantage of offers and do things a little bit more last minute. So that's the first piece. The second piece we found with these recoveries is that trips, total trips, people take more trips than they do spend more. In other words, the total spending trails a little bit the total number of trips. Mm -hmm. So people change the way they travel in recovery. Instead of a long haul trip initially, they might take a short trip, maybe a drive to a local or regional market where they can have a weekend or travel that feels more manageable. And we know just in this recent study we've done around coronavirus, the second safest people consume, second safest place people tell us for them is their car. Mm-hmm. So we know that in the early stages of recovery, travel by car, shorter trips are more palatable than long-term long-haul travel. Though we do see about a quarter in, in um, delay, people then begin to make those long-haul trips again. It's sort of this idea of tipping, uh, dipping your toe in, getting comfortable again, and then returning to more typical travel patterns. And I think, uh, are people expecting there's going to be a barrage? Because I think this is going to happen too, a barrage of travel deals and all kinds of specials from destinations, hotels, tour operators, cruise lines. Uh, So people are going to be inundated with these deals. And then there's also the portion of people that got refunds and also have uh, travel credits that they can use up, right? 100% right. Everybody listening should expect that they are going to be given special inducements to come back to travel, whether they're a corporate traveler, a meeting attendee, or a leisure traveler. A couple things I think are going to happen. One, as has traditionally happened, suppliers will provide discounted fares and rates, and those would typically be offered um, in some sort of last minute. Here, book this in the next 24 hours, and you'll get this. So that will manifest itself as we come out of recovery. The other thing that's happening already and that is not necessarily typical is that cancellation and rebooking policies are being relaxed significantly by both the airlines and the hotel industry. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a recognition that people, when they do want to travel, want to be able to book, not knowing exactly when the all clear is given, Mm -hmm. and be able to change those plans based on their comfort level. And I think that's a really important uh, nuance to the way the travel industry is approaching the traveler themselves. I think it's a really good sign. But it's also a sign that there's an expectation that people are going to begin traveling soon again and start even thinking about booking in the next 30 days for maybe trips they're going to do in mid to late summer or in the fall. Mm -hmm. And will those uh, sort of new kind of uh, booking policies, will they stay? Is this going to be a permanent thing that airlines and uh, and hotels and have to keep their cancellation policies so people still do have that confidence when they're booking? I doubt it. Um, there are some exceptions to that. Southwest Airlines, for example, has always had relaxed rebooking and cancellation fees. In the airline space, though, most of the mainline operators have been able to create true strong revenue streams around fees, whether they be baggage fees mm-hmm. or rebooking fees. I, I would expect those things will return. Um, when, I don't know, but I think the industry understands we've got to bring people back to traveling. And when we return to what I called earlier rational behavior and we're back into these norms, I would expect that those more rigid policies come back into play. Mm-hmm. What about the cruise lines? Uh, they were hit really hard with this COVID thing. Uh, is it going to be more difficult for them to bounce back? I think 
you're right. The narrative around being on a cruise ship and a flu or a virus like COVID-19, there's an association there. Um, I would argue that over time that association will disappear. I think this is such a pervasive virus that people assign it to all sorts of way of life. I don't think it's specific in any way to the cruise industry. So I don't think that's a long-term um, headwind for the cruise industry. I also believe because the cruise industry books so much through travel agents and that because travel agents will be perhaps more important in recovery in terms of counseling people to how they should travel and what's the right kind of travel to do. I actually think the travel agents will buoy the cruise industry and help for a fairly swift recovery. The other thing I'd mention is something we're tracking. We think there are two trends coming out of this that could be interesting in a travel. One, solo travel. People who maybe have been in their homes with their family for a long time and maybe want to get on the road by themselves. <laughs> they want to get out, that's yeah. A, that's actually true in, yeah. That's actually true in some parts of the world. For example, in Japan, that's, there's a lot of solo travel that goes on. Well, you expect that could be a small, there could be a small bump in people actually taking trips by themselves mm-hmm. and or taking trips with friends that they haven't seen for a long time versus their mm. family. But the other side of that, and this is where it's relevant for the cruise industry, I think you'll see an uptick in multi-generational travel. Mm-hmm. I think you'll find people wanting to connect again with their parents. I think you'll see grandkids with parents and grandparents. I think that's uh, something we would expect to see coming out of this because there's been so little connection in that respect during this. Mm -hmm. And I think the cruise industry is a perfect product for multi-generational travel. And I would expect that they'll benefit from that. Well, you make some interesting points. The article is called Looking Past the Crisis, the Future State of Travel. You can find it on a number of different websites. Uh, I found it on hospitalitynet.org. Uh, the final point you make is, is a good one. Be optimistic. That's right, Randy. I appreciate that. I, I do think it's hard when you're in the midst of a crisis like this to think positively, but we believe that that things will return to relative norms by the summer that people will begin to travel again, feel good again about communing with each other. And, and we want to take a hopeful note in that respect. I, but I appreciate the chance to speak with you. It's enjoyable. Thank you, Clayton. Clayton Reed is the CEO of MMGY Global. Uh, his website is mmgyglobal.com. Uh, pleasure chatting with you, Clayton. Uh, I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Well, imagine being on a cruise that seemingly never comes to an end and the place you thought you could disembark won't let you. That's the story for one couple, Ron and Deb Taylor, who were passengers on board the Azamara Pursuit cruise ship. It's quite an ordeal and Ron Taylor joins us now to share his experience. Hi, Ron. Hey, how you doing? Let's go back to the beginning and uh, do the basics here. So when did your cruise begin and where? Uh, we hopped on board in Buenos Aires on March the 2nd. And uh, that one just it started on the 2nd. It was supposed to end on uh, 21 days later on the, on the 23rd. And then we we're going to take a trip into Machu Picchu. But as we know, all that kind of got uh, deep sixed about half the way through, I guess, or mm-hmm. third of the way through. And we're going to talk about that. But uh, at that time, uh, I can't remember what the world was like. The, the travel bans, were, what was it like? And, and did you have any misgivings uh, going on your cruise at that time? Well, we, we'd left earlier in the, at the end of January. We spent a bit of time down in Costa Rica. We'd been there a few, few times, and we thought it's kind of halfway down to Buenos Aires. So let's do that again. Mm-hmm. When, we're, when we're in Costa, though, uh, 
you know, there's obviously problems in China and Italy were just starting to percolate a little bit, but uh, nothing had reached anywhere in Central America and in Costa Rica for sure. And, uh, uh, and North America was pretty much oblivious to it as far as hitting the North American shores, and there was nothing going on in South America when we got to Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. So now you're on the cruise ship, things are going fine, and then gradually things start going south. What was uh, one of the first signs that uh, there were some problems? Well, what we'd done is we'd uh, gone to Uruguay, which is right beside Buenos Aires, and then went all the way down the east coast of, of South America, down to the very bottom in Ushuaia, and still there was, was nothing... Uh, really happening so much back then. Uh, we spent a couple of days going through the fjords and up to a place called uh, uh, Punta Arenas, uh, where we, we got off uh, eh, right around the 9th of, or the 11th of March. That's the last time we touched dry land. And there's there's no problem there. Uh, we we went, to a, went out in the country, went to a museum and an old fort, and then back to the boat. And then uh, our next stop was to be in Puerto Chacabuco, and when we got there, I think Chile itself started to get a bit nervous about what was going on. So what they had done with us, uh, they uh, uh, temperature checked everybody on the boat. Like mm-hmm. We didn't come on board or anything, but uh, our, our doctor and, and medical people did that on board. And uh, nobody was found to be in any difficulty or, or symptom-wise or anything. And uh, the... Uh, you know, they agreed with the medical people uh, in Puerto Chacabuco that uh, we were a healthy ship. But uh, I think uh, Chacabuco got uh, kind of uh, given direction from the Chilean central government, mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't let us off on shore. So uh, that was, like I said, the 11th was the last time we were on, on dry land, and then when we got to Chacabuco, they uh, uh, said we couldn't come on at all. So at that point, uh, Chile, uh, who's a, <laughs> Chile's uh, itself is not that stable at the best of times. Um, it uh, it just kind of shuttered its doors essentially, and uh, you know, so did so did Peru. Mm-hmm. So then you, you sort of uh, bounced <laughs> from country to country, and neither one of them, nobody wanted to uh, take you ashore, as from, from what I gather. Yeah, well, Peru was the first one that uh, shut its borders, and I think that might have uh, triggered. Uh, Chile to do the same thing because mm-hmm. our, our cruise was to end in Peru and you know our captain uh, decided since Peru is not an option to even get to shore that they would end the cruise in uh, just outside of uh, Santiago just a bit north of there in Valparaiso but uh, we kind of spent two days uh, in negotiation Captain Carl Smith uh, from the Isle of Man was our skipper and he was an absolute giant in this whole thing but uh, they he negotiated. Uh, we were supposed to go to uh, either Valparaiso or, or a port just south of there, mm-hmm. but uh, there, there wasn't any place. Uh, Santiago is inland a bit, so these are the only two ports that were kind of close to it. And they're going back and forth as to what to do. It at one point they were going to let us off, get on a bus, and go to the airport and fly out if, if that was the only thing they would let us do. But trying to get. 700 people to get flights out of Santiago at roughly the same time mm-hmm. with, an, with an internet that doesn't work essentially um, was next to impossible. 
at some point, did you get sort of worried to go, uh-oh, like, how are we going to get home? Uh, was that sort of at that point then, and then you started to, to have to make alternate arrangements? Well, we'd originally booked a flight. We, we got through and finally got our, our travel lady in, in Burlington that set up the, the cruise. She uh, booked us a flight from uh, Santiago through Colombia to Bogota and then to uh, Toronto. But uh, a day later after that, uh, Air Canada canceled its flight for uh, the, one, <laughs> the one we were supposed to be on. And they were going to put us in a hotel for three days in Bogota, which Deb and I weren't all that crazy about. But there weren't many options at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got really nervous one night and uh, couldn't sleep. So we checked the Internet and found out that uh, Columbia was closing its borders the next day. So uh, here we are at 3 a.m. trying to get a uh, flight changed uh, so that we didn't have to go through Colombia, and we ended up uh, booking one through Sao Paulo, Brazil um, uh, the same day, but uh, you know, it was <laughs> and, and Sao Paulo is just directly east of, of uh, Santiago, so it wasn't that far of a, a place to go sort of thing, mm. but uh, we, we booked that one, and uh, within that 24-hour period uh, Azamara made the decision that, okay, uh, Nobody can really do this easily, so we're just going to take the ship. We're going to load it up with provisions and fuel and just sail it right through to Miami. And that's the point where we canceled uh, Brazil because uh, <laughs> Santiago wasn't going to, or uh, Chile wasn't going to let us in there to even catch the plane anyway. They were yeah. just totally uh, shutting people right off, right off of its uh, land mass. So all this time you're uh, anchored. You're not docked, right, because they wouldn't let you dock. Am I they correct? Would not, no. Yeah, nope, so you're anchored not. on a ship and you're trying to, you get uh, flights booked and then they get cancelled. And flights booked and get cancelled. I mean, it must be uh, awfully nerve-wracking at that point. Well, I'll give you an example. The Australians, when we were down at 3 a.m. Uh, trying to uh, book our flights, so these Aussies were down there doing the same thing. There's about 70 of them on the boat. And uh, they uh, had booked their flight uh home which cost them about six thousand bucks yikes and uh when all this stuff happened where nobody was allowed on shore they lost all their money oh my <laughs> they, gosh so uh everybody was uh scrambling at that point before we knew the boat was uh going to keep on going then you know the captain uh he's his his negotiations involved trying to get enough fuel and and supplies uh-huh. food, food and that sort of thing to last us to get through the Panama Canal and home that, and he managed to do that. Uh, they they would tender out uh, or send a uh, barge out with materials, and they, they'd fog down and wipe down everything else uh, to make sure that everything was uh, was uh, clean when it got on board. And our and, and our captain wouldn't let our passports off because Chile border uh, people wanted our passports mm. for immigration, and he wouldn't let our, our passports off just in case they got good some move virus, by him. <laughs> some virus taint on. He was looking after us the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, so at no time, no, nobody was sick, though, right? Nope, nobody was sick. Uh, I haven't, excuse me, I haven't heard of anybody uh, being sick since then. Azamara mm-hmm. would have would have had to let anybody know that uh, that was for mm-hmm. sure. And so, what was the mood like on board when you're traveling uh, through Panama Canal and uh, onwards to Miami? Well, I think everybody, we well, we resigned ourselves to the fact that. Uh, Nobody was flying anywhere. Our mm-hmm. next, our next thing was how are we going to get to home from Miami? And a lot of people didn't have even have visas because they weren't expecting to go through the U.S. to do any of this stuff. But uh, 
uh, like Europeans and such. But the mood itself, like this, what are you going to do about it? Well, you know, we we sit on on deck and we play cards and we you know have our meals and mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it'd be lectures and and entertainment as as much as you can do on a on a ship uh, that size. Yeah. So and, and you, you weren't know, quarantined this whole time though. You you still had the run of the ship basically. Yeah, and anybody could go anywhere like they normally would because it was a it was a clean boat at, at that point. I think we were one of the cleanest environments on the planet. As far as, <laughs> Probably, uh, yeah. Because, <laughs> like I said, we had, we hadn't touched land for a long time. Nobody come on board. So then so, you uh, so then you finally get to Miami, and then what happens? Well, we'd uh, were originally going to get there on March the thirtieth, but uh, we steamed in there a little bit quicker because somebody had a. A medical issue. We had we had one one helicopter rescue uh, uh, just outside of Chile. Then we had another one where uh, somebody had some sort of attack uh, with their heart or something that mm-hmm. uh, they had to uh, uh, take them off and go to Key West. So uh, I think he, our our captain went a little bit quicker to be able to solve that problem. Then we got in on the 29th instead of the 30th. What what they did then is they had. Uh, when you go on, on and off a cruise ship, people don't know you have a, a, a key card that gets you into your uh, your stateroom, mm-hmm. and that has all the information your you know your, your passport connections and all that sort of thing. That's that's what you take off the ship instead of your passport. Mm-hmm. So uh, they had this machine set up in in the main uh, outside the main lounge, and everybody would go in. They'd uh, get their cards swiped, and then there'd be uh, U.S. border people standing about eight feet back. You'd walk by, show the picture of your passport, because we had our passports at that point. And uh, they would just kind of wave us through, just to show that we were who we were. Um, and that's that was essentially, that was it for the uh, the immigration process in the U.S. And, uh, and then hopped on a flight and made it back safe and sound. Well, we didn't go till the day after. Most people were gone on the 30th. Um, a lot of the Americans... A lot of people have their flights canceled on the 29th. They had to rebook on the 29th for the 30th. But uh, most of them got off the boat. There were 50 of us left on the last night. And uh, we left on the 31st. What we what they did, Azamara provided a bus for us. And it was their thing. It was all wiped down and cleaned up. And uh, we went to Fort Lauderdale um, and uh, no, checked in there about uh, you know, 9 or 10 in the morning. And uh, luckily, we were able to get checked through in security and all that. And we just kind of huddled together in an airport that was largely empty anyway. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hopped on board to Toronto, uh, went through the process there, and hopped on board to Calgary. Pretty amazing story. One I'm sure you'll never forget, and it's one for the ages. Uh, will you ever take a cruise again? Oh, I think so. You know, I think the world itself has to kind of get uh, uh, corrected here, I think, as far as getting this thing under control and may, mm-hmm. may not take a, any time soon. And a lot of people or a lot of cruise lines are, are trying to sell their, their product uh, for the, even this year. But I would be highly doubtful if, uh, if anything's going to happen before the end of the year, mm-hmm. my, in my own, my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a, an incredible story. Ron Taylor, his wife, Deb, uh, passengers on board the Azamara Pursuit cruise ship. Uh, thanks for sharing it with us, uh, Ron. Anytime, Andy. 
And that is this week's Informed Traveler podcast. I want to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, take a minute, rate the show, leave us a review, and tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to drop me a line, my email address is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler, or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.